Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first session in a two-part series by Miyagi. And the focus for this first session will be in helping suppliers and brands understand the buyer and their goals in the sales relationship. We will begin by exploring the views of the buying and selling relationship through the eyes of both brands and retailers. We'll discuss the changing face of organizational structures as the digital revolution continues. And we'll then go on to look at uh, the concept of range architecture, and we'll cover an example from the US. And then we'll finish off by examining the open to buy process. And joining me today to discuss these topics, I'd like to welcome a very special guest with a wealth of experience in retail. Brian Hume is the Managing Director of MarTech International, a specialist consulting firm that provide a host of services to companies in the retail industry and companies that sell to retailers. Brian, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Sam. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into these topics with you today. Now, prior to founding MarTech, Brian held several senior positions with leading UK retailer Debenhams, and his department store career qualified him to provide a unique insight into a number of areas across the retail spectrum. Today, MarTech focused their services on improving their clients' profitability across four key areas. Firstly, business processes and best practices in buying, merchandising, store operations, loss prevention, and supply chain management. Retail technology selection and implementation, including change management. Go-to-market services for tech vendors and manufacturers that are selling to retailers. And skills training in the retail industry for vendors and retailers. If you've got any questions following our discussion today, then please send those to edu at miyagi.com. That's edu at miyagi.com. And we'll get right back to you. And then following the session, there will be additional materials that you're able to access from visiting miyagi.com slash martech. So, Brian, uh, over to you. Thank you, Sam. And uh, on my behalf, I'd like to welcome you all to this broadcast. In today's session, I'll review some of the feedback that we typically get from brands and retailers, particularly about their views on the buying and selling relationship. As a brand representative, there's one critical thing you need to know, which is whether your account is a category management or a merchandise management retailer. Once you know this, you can adjust your sales approach to maximize your chances of success. So I'll explain these terms and what difference it makes to you. Then I will talk a little bit about organization structures and how they are changing as more of the world goes online. I'll review who does what in the evolving organization and who you need to engage in your sales, marketing and account management activities in order to maximize your potential with the account. I'll explain how the retail people get paid so you can also factor that into your decision making. Next, I'll describe the important concept of range or assortment architecture. And with a US example, I'll explain what it means for you. I'll also describe the favorable cash flow that retailers have and how they seek to maximize it and protect it. This may help you in creating and negotiating more rewarding deals for both parties. Finally, I will describe the open to buy process and what it means to fashion or merchandise management retailers. And then I'll summarize a few key points and take any questions. These are some of the regular comments we hear from brands. We don't understand why they, the retailers, select some of our products and not others. They won't invest in the inventory they really need for a credible offer. They keep asking for price cuts and longer payment terms rather than working with us to take redundant costs out of supply chain. Their store colleagues don't know our products and can't sell them as effectively as we would like, and they don't invest in product training for their store personnel. In the same vein, this is what we hear from retailers. 
The manufacturers and brands don't understand our business. They don't understand assortment planning, assortment architectures, notions like good, better, best, open to buy for seasonal or fashion goods. They keep offering us unsuitable products that don't fit into our range structures. They keep shoving too much inventory at us. The deals aren't good enough. They don't understand our cash flow. And training our staff in their product knowledge is too expensive and they don't understand why we can't afford it. There are probably more elements than these though, right, Brian? Yes, and we'll pick those up in the second session in this series of two. And we'll provide more information in the free follow-up materials that will be available afterwards. Let's start by understanding that all retailers fundamentally fit one of two models. They're either category management or merchandise management retailers. There are some that have both sets of characteristics, and you have to divide them into separate divisions and treat each division somewhat separately if that's typical of your account. Category management retailers are companies like grocers, home improvement or DIY chains, drugstores, electrical retailers and the like. They sell products which are on the shelves in the store all year round. The sales may have seasonal peaks and troughs. Like luggage, they sell more when people are getting ready for their holidays, but they can be sold all year round. In these types of retailer, typically only a small percentage of the product range changes each year. Often it's as small as 10%. Because products sell year in and year out, they have extensive sales history. They're much easier to forecast demand for and are therefore much lower risk. These types of products tend to have higher inventory or stock turns, often as many as eight times a year and upwards. And because they're low risk, they have relatively low gross margins. Categories are run by category managers who have buyers to buy the product and negotiate the terms with you initially and rebuying teams or supply chain teams who then buy further quantities on the agreed deal to keep the company and its stores in stock. They often employ replenishment specialists and supply chain analysts to manage this. On the other hand, merchandise management retailers sell fashion products. People mostly think of fashion as clothing or apparel, but fashion can include toys, fashion kitchenware, for example. Copper kitchenware has been very much a fashion trend. It may include things like character merchandise from the movies and other things that are trends at a point in time, often to do with things that have happened at the cinema or on television. Once this merchandise goes off sale, it stays off sale until the next corresponding season. So typically the product is in the stores either for autumn, winter or for spring, summer. But in very high fashion retailers, there can be short seasons like early spring, late spring and summer. Every season, the vast bulk of the range changes. And in this context, the vast bulk of the range is 70% or more. Thanks, Brian. It's really useful to take that away and identify the different models that retailers adopt within their business. Is there one overriding trigger that determines whether a retailer goes down one path or another? Or is it purely driven by the merchandising mix? Insofar as it affects brands or manufacturers, the big determinant of how retailers run their business is the percentage of merchandise that is continuity or year round versus fashion or seasonal. And, and looking at the people in the retail team, what does a typical um, retail org structure look like? Like all organisations, retailers are run by a CEO or sometimes a president and the CEO reports to a chairman and a board of directors. The functions that most matter underneath the CEO, the, the most important one to the brands and manufacturers is the buying and merchandising division, 
The next one is store operations. And store operations are the people that physically run the stores. They're responsible for customer service and the sales of the merchandise to consumers. And they're responsible for keeping the inventory warm and dry. These days, almost every retailer of any significance has a separate e-commerce department. And because online sales are becoming a much more significant percentage of the business over time, the e-commerce department has become bigger and more important. And these days is run by a dedicated e-commerce director that either sits on the main board or sits on the operating board of the company. Then you have the marketing department, which in some cases didn't exist in retail 15 years ago, but has come into prominence, especially so as e-commerce has developed, because with the advent of e-commerce on the scale it is now, we now have much more detailed and embracing consumer databases. And therefore, marketing departments have got a lot more core material to work with so they can develop much better marketing strategies and plans. And then there are a series of other departments like warehousing and distribution, finance, IT, and so on. But from the brand point of view, it's particularly important to be aware of the buying and merchandising because they typically control all of the purchasing of products that are sourced from the brands or manufacturers. It's very important to be engaged with store operations because they're responsible for delivering the customer service and ultimately the sales of that product to the end consumer. E-commerce, because an increasing proportion of sales are now made online, whether that's online shipped to the customer's home or online and collected from a nearby store. But in some cases, now as much as 40% of total company sales can be made through the e-commerce division. And it's very important to be close to the marketing, especially when you look at things like trade promotion funds and the effective deployment of those funds. So really, the core message, if you're a brand or a manufacturer, is in your account management and account planning activities, make sure that you engage all of these different functions in your account management activities and your account management plan. Great. Yeah, I think that's a really good breakdown of who's responsible for, for what and, and who you need to be aware of addressing within the, the retailer. It's not enough just to know who to talk to. You have to understand what's motivating them too. An old adage is that people do what they get paid to do, whether you meant it or not. So, for example, if you look at the executive that runs the buying and merchandising or the purchasing division, their bonus structure is typically a relationship between the volume of sales they achieve, the gross margin they achieve during the trading period, the inventory turn or stock turn they achieve. If it's a merchandise management retailer, it will include the terminal stocks, which is the end of season stocks that they carry over into the next season. It may include uh, things like uh, gross margin return on inventory investment, which is a metric that includes both gross margin and inventory turn. And it may include how successful they are attracting uh, trade promotion funds from the brand or manufacturer. In store operations, for example, they get paid on sales, on store expenses as a percent to sales, the level of shrinkage, the level of customer service, and so on. The more you can tune your sales messages and your marketing messages to be in line with the way the executives get paid, the greater your probability of success. So can we get into the skin of the process a little here and understand range architecture? Yes. And the easiest way to explain this is with an example. And typically what happens is that retailers divide their architecture into good, better, best. And they will set a goal so that, for example, 
the good section of the architecture, which we often refer to as the products that are sold at entry-level price points. In other words, they are the cheaper products that we carry in the range. They will have a percentage sales target so that we might say, for example, that amongst the good products, we'd like those to achieve 25% of our sales. The better products are better quality and they're more expensive. And typically, we might say that we want the better products to account for 50% of our sales. The best products are the top end of the range. And maybe we want those to account for 25% of our sales and they'll be the most expensive products that we carry. Now, these numbers, 25, 50, 25, they're not hard and fast. They vary uh, company to company and they depend on the company strategy. But the important point uh, to understand, first of all, is that because the better product is typically 50 to 60 percent of the sales mix, the retailers typically offer a lot more choice in the better segment than they do in the best order good. When you're looking at introducing a product to a retailer, you need to understand from the retailer's perspective, where would it fit in this architecture? So, for example, if you have a product that you think might fit into the good segment or to the better segment, if what that product does is duplicates the effect of another product from a different brand at the same point in the architect or the same positioning in the architecture, unless your product's got some unique proposition, it's much harder to get it selected to be in the assortment. So, so one thing you need to do is look at the retailer's assortment figure out how your products might fit into that assortment and figure out where there are competing products from other brands. What is it about your product that makes you special? That means that um, they should give priority to you in what at the end of the day is a limited amount of shelf and fixture space in the store. So just to take a, a simple example, if you sell power drills and you're uh, trying to get a new product into uh, a home improvement or a DIY chain, if that target chain has a significant share of their customer base among senior citizens uh, and semi-retired people, those people aren't typically as strong or as fit as they were when they were younger. And therefore, if you've got a power drill that's targeted at the right price point for a senior citizen and it's particularly light but strong and durable, you know, that's a reason to appeal to that segment of the retailer's customer base and a reason that you might be in the range rather than a competitive brand where the product's actually a lot heavier and a little more difficult for somebody in their 70s, say, to actually lift. So understand the range architecture, understand how to position your product in that range architecture, understand how to articulate your value relative to the competitor products, and that will increase your probability of getting new products adopted. Perfect. That's a really great explanation. Thanks for that, Brian. Now, what I'd like to do is examine a real-life example. And in the materials that we referred to a couple of times now, there is a detailed chart that will help you understand some of this. And you might want to listen to this um, broadcast again with the chart in front of you. But I took a real-life example the product in this case is actually pillows. And we gathered competitive data from three US retail chains. Two of them are what we call everyday low price retailers. Uh, one of them is a department store with what we refer to as high low pricing. In other words, they, they do a lot of promotions and they do deep discounts when they're on promotion. The two everyday low price retailers are Walmart and Target. And we analyzed the number of choices 
or the number of product choices that each retailer offers to the end consumer at each price that they sell product at or at each price point. So at $4.99, for example, Walmart offered three choices of product. But at $4.99, Target only offered one. At $7.88, Walmart offered two choices, but Target offered four. When you understand this price point architecture, you can start to look at the competitors' offerings and say, for example, in the case of Walmart, their entry level or their good is products that sell for $3.46 and $4, and their better starts at $4.99, and their best starts at just under $12. Target, on the other hand, has a product that also sells for $3.46, the same as Walmart, so they can legitimately claim that they match Walmart on the price point, but they only have one offering, and when you go to the $4 price point, they don't have anything. When you go to the $4.99, where Walmart have three, Target only have one. In other words, Walmart expect to take way more sales at $4.99 than Target does. If you um, follow through at $7.88, Walmart have two choices, Target have four. Target expect to take most of their money at the $7.88 price point. So if you look at where the bulk of the sales occur, in Target versus Walmart, what you realize is that Target are selling at a 12.5% premium in terms of price to the Walmart comparison. Now, once you understand this kind of thing, you can look at your product, understand what price it needs to retail for in order to make an appropriate gross margin on top of your cost price. And then you that points you to where to position it. And then you start thinking about if I wanted to market this product to Target, What's the argument that says you can sell this product and you can command a 12.5% price premium over Walmart? Now, that kind of thinking enables you to be more successful at getting products into the range. JCPenney is a high-low retailer. They spend a lot of time on promotion. So when you look at their products, you really have to say, because the bulk of the time they're on sale, they're on sale on promotion, you have to make the same kind of comparison between JCPenney and and Walmart, you'll find that in the case of JCPenney, they expect to take the bulk of their sales somewhere around about the $12.99 to $19.99 price points, which is right at the top end of Walmart and Target. So they're not actually competing in the same space. So when you look at your individual accounts, you have to understand what their rationale is behind their assortment, what their positioning is in a marketplace and how you choose to play to that. Perfect. And it definitely sounds like the supplier really needs to do their homework before just um, pitching their brand story and, and offer every time. Well, and I guess really the core message is the more homework you do, the more success you're likely to have. So it pays back on investing the effort to understand these things properly. But also keep in mind, you don't just want retailers to take one product because you need a credible brand presence in the store in order to achieve your objectives for the brand. But also because the retailers investing in your brand, they need a credible presence to achieve their objectives as well. There's another big difference between being a brand or a manufacturer and being a retailer. And that difference is cash flow. Let me take a simple example. Suppose, for example, that you're a retail grocery chain. In retail jargon, you turn your inventory 12 times a year. 
what that means in simple terms is you buy a truckload of inventory and 30 days later you've sold it and you've got all the money sat in the bank account ready to pay things like your end of month payroll expenses and so on in that 30 days you're accumulating cash. You sell the first product on day one, you know, the second on day two and so on. And by the end of 30 days, you've sold the whole truckload. On average through the month, you've got half a truckload's worth of cash sat in your bank account until you start paying bills. So the first thing retailers try and do is their minimum goal is if it takes 30 days to sell a truckload, their minimum goal is to pay you no faster than 30 days. If they do that, they've actually got quite a successful business financially. Um, it gets better than that because let's suppose that I can turn my inventory 12 times a year. In other words, I can sell a truckload in a month, but I negotiate that I will pay you on 60 days. So at the end of my first 30 days, I've got the equivalent of a truckload of cash in the bank until I pay my expenses. And through the month, I've had half a truckload. In the second month, I hold the equivalent of half a truckload because I bought my second truck and I sold out over 30. So I'm holding the equivalent of half a truckload. But actually, because I don't pay you for 60 days, I've still got all the money from the truckload I sold last month. Now, it's not quite true because at the end of the month, I've got to pay the wages and the rent and things like that. So what I've actually got is I've got all the gross margin on the first month and I've got half a truckload's worth of cash from the truck I sold in the second month. And then I pay you for month old merchandise. So I'm sitting on something approaching a truckload and a half of cash. So it's not quite as good as that because of the expenses you have to pay out. But the point about this is retailers have very strong cash flow. And very often as a brand, you come under pressure because they want to extend your payment terms from 30 days to 60 days or 60 days to 90 days. And one of the big challenges often to defend yourself against that. Now, one of the things that retailers do is they work out what other things they can do with that cash. So, for example, when they take the money in every night, they will invest it all the surplus cash from today. They will invest on the overnight money markets and they'll earn a tiny rate of interest. But a tiny rate of interest on millions and millions of dollars racks up. Very often they'll negotiate deals with you, the brand, to say, I will pay you on 60 days. But if I choose to pay you early, suppose I choose to pay you in seven days instead of 60, I'll take an extra 5% discount. And many of you will have negotiated deals like that where you'll get paid early in return for a bigger discount. And what the retailer is doing is to say, I can leave the money in a bank and, over, uh, and earn a low rate of interest on my deposits. Or if I've got surplus cash, I can pay you early and take a much bigger discount, which is much bigger than the interest I'll earn leaving it in the bank. One of the things that retailers have is they've got very favorable cash flow and they're very much looking to protect it. And the more they can negotiate extended terms with you, the better their position. So one of the things you need to do is to figure out how to protect yourself against excessive payment terms. So what levers are there that the brand can use to defend itself against worsening payment terms? That's a good question, Sam. There are really three important elements to consider. They are the gross margin percent, the inventory turn and the payment terms. So if you're trying to defend your payment terms and resist pressure from the retailers to take longer terms, first of all, 
see what you can do to help the retailer achieve their goals by working together to create a faster inventory turn. One way of the retailer achieving the same impact is instead of taking longer payment terms, I take a faster inventory turn. Now, if there are things you can do in your supply chain and the way that you receive orders and process orders from the retailer, which means that effectively they can achieve a faster inventory turn, that is equivalent to giving them so many days benefit of payment terms. So if there are things you can liaise with your colleagues in the organization and find out ways that you can improve the supply chain efficiency, that gives you one opportunity. Another example is look at the gross margin that the retailer achieves and look at the gross margin you achieve. And if you can't give them a way of improving uh, payment terms or you don't want to, can you help them effectively by giving them a bigger gross margin? Now, the knee jerk reaction is, you know, I already give them a good enough gross margin. Uh, I'm not suggesting for one second that you cut your own margin. But what I would say, for example, is look at things like the packaging that surrounds your product. It's well known across the retail industry in many countries that a lot of products are severely overpackaged and the cost of packaging is a significant percentage of the cost of the goods. So, for example, could you look at the packaging, figure out cheaper ways to package the product and take that cash saving and give it to the retailer in lieu of extended payment terms? Their gross margin gets better because they're buying it from, from you for a little bit less. Your gross margin actually stays the same because all you're passing on is a cost saving that you manage to make. So when you come under this pressure, don't just knee jerk to negotiating the payment terms and struggling to defend your position. Look at the several things you can do to understand how they interact and where you might be able to give the retailer some of what they're looking for, but without damaging your own interests using some of the examples that I've quoted. Uh, we refer to this as the Bermuda Triangle or the CFO's Bermuda Triangle because if the retailer fails to manage the relationship between gross margin, inventory turn and payment terms correctly, that's when some or all of their profits disappear. And consequently, if you're the chief financial officer in a retailer, this whole area is a big focus for you. So, again, when you're thinking about your account management strategies, think about how in your account plan you can also engage with the chief financial officer so that you can head off some of these issues. Or to use a piece of jargon, you can head these off at the pass. So the last thing I'd like to do today is to touch on the concept of open to buy you will only come across open to buy as an issue if you sell to merchandise management retailers. This is something category management retailers do not do. So you will never see this in a conventional category management retailer. If you sell to merchandise management retailers, you may come across this quite regularly. And essentially, open to buy is a process that allows seasonal retailers to control how much money they spend buying inventory but it also ensures that they buy enough inventory in order to achieve their sales plan. The funny thing about fashion retailing or seasonal retailing is if you don't buy enough stock, you will miss your sales plan. If you buy too much stock, you incur much greater markdown at the end of the season in trying to clear it. The ideal scenario is to buy as near as you can is to buy exactly the right amount. Very often you can be in conversations with a retailer and say, for example, if you buy more of our product, your sales will be higher. And the retailer may come back and say, I'd love to do that, but I haven't got any open to buy left in order to do it. So once you understand the notion of open to buy, 
you can start thinking about whether there are workarounds that you can address in order to help you. One example is, can you supply product on sale or return? Not everybody wants to do that, and that's perfectly understandable. Can you supply what we we call consignment stock, which is very often you see it in things like major electricals, like washing machines and refrigerators, where we'll put stock into the retailer's warehouse and they will pay for it when they sell it. And you might say, why on earth would I do that? And the reason you would do it is a particular scenario If your production operation, if your factories have got peaks and troughs in production that follow the peaks and troughs in retail demand, there might be occasions where it's better to make more production during off-peak times because your costs of running the factories are 80% fixed or something like that. And it might be worth in those environments offering the retailer consignment stock to help them to sell more on the basis that if they've got the stock, they will sell more anyway. Although you're financing inventory ahead of when you need to, the savings that you get from running the factory in a more even state of production might actually compensate you. So there are circumstances where you do it. We had a very good example in the department store that I used to work for when a manufacturer of ladies fashion hats and berries came to us and said, look, guys, you don't stock enough of our product. You should buy more and have bigger selections and more depth of stock in the stores. The buying department concern said we haven't got enough open to buy to pay for it, although we we take the spirit of what you say. They actually, for a season, they actually put stock in on a sale or return basis. And for certain products, we paid for those products when we sold them. What actually happened was sales of that whole category doubled. It was very successful. The the manufacturer's judgment was a very good judgment with the benefit of hindsight. When it came to the next trading year, the company I worked for was able to get the open to buy because we had the sales history from last year to prove that it made economic sense. So because a retailer says to you, we don't have open to buy, that isn't necessarily a reason to stop and say, OK, so we can't do anything then and go away and leave it. Sometimes there are alternatives where you can come back with an alternative strategy that ends up making sense for both parties. Not true in every case, but be aware of it and be looking out for it because it's true more often than people realise. Fantastic. Um, well, I think that just about wraps us up for today's session, Brian. So thanks for giving us some real insight into helping suppliers and brands understand the, the buyer and their goals in the sales relationship. Uh, as we mentioned earlier on, there will be some additional materials following this session that you're able to get access to by visiting miyagi.com slash martech. If you've got any questions for, for either myself or Brian, then please feel free to send those to edu at miyagi.com. That's edu at miyagi.com. And thank you very much for everyone who's taken the time to listen to this session today. And and finally, Brian, thanks for joining us. And I'm looking forward to connecting again for, for part two shortly. And thank you, Sam. And I'd like to thank everybody that joined us today for their time and attention. I hope you got value from it.